raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, if your kids are still here, Brant forgot to uh, let you know that they can go out to the lobby and, and meet the, uh, the Christ City Kids teachers and uh, helpers there, and they're going to learn about Jesus. Just getting you, buddy. Um, <laughs> good morning. Uh, my name's Fred. I'm part of the team here. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to extend a very warm uh, welcome to you. We're thankful that you've taken this time and Sunday morning to, to come and be with us, uh, to, to worship the Lord Jesus in song together, and to uh, hear from his word uh, to us. So before we look at the psalm, Psalm 131, that James just read for us, uh, as usual, I, I, we need to just lean in and humble ourselves and pray. So can I ask you to pray with me, please? Our great God and Father, we trust, because your, your word says it so many times, we trust that you love us. Because this morning, we're not, we're not trusting in ourselves. We're looking to Jesus. We're trusting in him. And in him, your everlasting love and grace and goodness is poured out continually on our lives. And so, Lord, we've gathered here this morning to hear, to hear you speak to us in our particular place, in our, our, our specific situation. And so we're listening. Speak to us, Lord, by your spirit. Stir in our hearts what we need to hear from you this morning. If it's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, Lord, lead us there. If it's strengthened faith and hope in your risen and reigning son, lead us there. We all need that. If it's love for others, lead us there. We all need these things, Lord. Work in your way, in your hearts, in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Psalm 131, very simply, Psalm 131 is about being content. Now, what is contentment? Uh, we, we use that word, but maybe we don't think about the definition very much. Uh, contentment, I think, is that, that inner stillness, that inner quietness and peace. And this is the important part, which is not ultimately dependent upon our, our situation. So contentment, as we're talking about it this morning, is, a, is an inner quality of, of quietness and peace and stillness, which is not ultimately dependent upon what's happening in our lives, our, our specific situations. In Philippians 4.11, the Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning. 
And so this morning, my goal uh, through this message is to help us take a step or hopefully a leap forward toward toward learning contentment. I want us to learn what David here in Psalm 131 has learned and what Paul in Philippians 4.11 has learned. We want to be a contented people. Now, I'm aware as I, as I unpack all of that for you this morning that if, if we are being honest with ourselves, and I hope we try to be honest with ourselves, if we're being honest with ourselves... I think we would have to admit, most of us, many of us, maybe all of us would have to admit that we have trouble uh, being content, right? We struggle with that. It doesn't come, come easily for us. And I would say that given the age in which we are living, um, that doesn't surprise me at all. You know, think, for example, about, about advertising and marketing. Advertising and marketing is calculated to make us feel discontent and restless. Because advertising and marketing tells us, by creating this discontentment in our hearts, it tells us that the only way we can alleviate that discomfort is by owning this car or these clothes or these cosmetics that they're trying to sell us, right? Social media doesn't help much either on this count. Think about it. Every day we are bombarded by thousands of images on our phones of, of, of amazing, amazing things to do and amazing places to go. And let's face it, we, we, we look through our feeds of these glorious, wonderful images of, of what everybody else is doing, and we begin to feel as though we're getting the short end of the stick, right? We're missing out. In the early 2000s, a new word entered our vocabulary, FOMO. FOMO is an acronym, stands for fear of missing out. One source describes FOMO as the pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which we are absent. Discontentment's not, it's not new. It's as old as the fall of Adam and Eve. But what I'm, I'm suggesting this morning is that in, in, in our modern, accelerated culture with all of its technology and its mass information, our, our discontentment levels, our inner agitation has been taken to a whole new level. So we, we need contentment. We need to pursue contentment. One writer said, we live in an age of discontentment. And I think he's accurate. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 131, where David reveals steps 
for us to learn if we're going to be content. I have three points. Here they are if you're taking notes. Verse 1. Verse 1 is renouncing pride. Verse 2. Verse 2 is cultivating contentment. And verse 3 is encouraging hope. Those are my three points. Renouncing pride, cultivating contentment, and encouraging hope. Let's jump in with renouncing pride in verse 1. Look at what David says in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, here's what David knows. David knows that true contentment, that true contentment will never take root and grow and flourish in a proud heart. See, pride and contentment never go together. Proud people, this is an absolute statement, no equivocation, proud people are never content. That's why he begins where he begins this morning. See, the problem with pride, and this is in the air that we breathe in our culture, the problem with pride is that it fills us with a sense of entitlement, doesn't it? Life owes us. We deserve everything that is good and nothing that is bad. Now, if you've lived more than about five or six years in this world, you'll know that nothing, life in a fallen world never works out that way. Never. In fact, I would say this, that that all of that inner noise and that restlessness that we feel, all of that anxiety, or much of it anyway, much of that anxiety and fear, that, that agitation and distress, that impatience and anger, much of that is due to our pride and our self-centeredness. See, people in events like traffic, people and events frustrate us and agitate us and, and pick us Because people in events haven't got the memo. You are supposed to serve me, my agenda, my desires, my plan for my life. Thank you very much. And when you don't cooperate, it ticks me off. And that I would suggest, that pride, that self-centeredness, is a huge reason why Uh, real true contentment is so rare in our world and in our lives. John Stott nailed it when he said, at every stage of our discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. So because pride is the enemy of contentment, in verse 1, of Psalm 131, in verse 1, David says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
put that in another, another way, David isn't full of himself. David isn't pumping up his ego by thinking of himself more highly than he ought to think of himself. Then he adds this. My eyes are not raised too high. What that means is, is David doesn't project sort of this, this haughty air of superiority around others. He doesn't look down on everyone else around him as if somehow they're beneath him. This is the king. He could, but he didn't. Finally, David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, let me just stop there for a second and be clear. This is not the life verse for lazy people. David isn't saying this to kind of, you know, chillax, take it easy. David's the king of Israel, as I said. He's a warrior. He's a kingdom builder. David isn't a slacker. This isn't the life verse of lazy people. What this verse is not an argument for, this verse does not argue for ignorance and indifference. Okay? Rather, this verse is a renunciation of vain or empty or proud speculation. What do I mean by that? Well, whenever I think of, you know, kind of where your mind takes you somewhere off into the the great unknown and you begin to have uh, flights of fancy about what is. And I listened to a radio broadcast yesterday, somebody making like these these amazingly confident assertions that there are absolutely billions of alien civilizations. I mean, I have no idea, but come on. Like, you don't know. Nobody knows. You know, have you heard of SETI, this this satellite uh, uh, system that's listening into the universe? They've been listening since 1970. The silence is deafening. And so nobody knows. I'm not saying there isn't. But to, to say that without a doubt, I think he said it would, it would, be, a, it would be the safest bet in, in Vegas to bet that there are billions of alien civilizations on other planets. I have no idea, but that's a silly thing to say. Vain speculation. Silly assertions that... You and I just can never know. And I don't know about you, but this is happening more and more, right? Like some people should just know when to shut up. I need to know when to shut up sometimes. Not right now. You got me for a few more minutes. <laughs> let, me, let me just tell you where I'm getting this from. I'm not just inventing this idea. This is in the Bible. This is in God's word. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think of this verse often. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, look at what it says. The secret things, 
the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. See, a humble person knows and accepts and lives within his or her limitations. The humble person isn't always trying to peek behind the curtain of eternity to know the mysterious, secret, hidden purposes of the infinite, personal, triune God. Paul the Apostle knew this. In Romans 11.33, this is what he wrote. Listen. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. See, God has revealed much to us in his word. You notice the Bible is not a three-page pamphlet. There is a lot there to chew on, think about, meditate over, memorize, pray over, and understand. Much. Much. But the secret things belong to Him. Many of the Lord's ways, many of the Lord's judgments are ultimately beyond our ability to figure out. And a humble person knows and accepts this reality. Now, let me just say this about verse 1. Really easy to read, really hard to do. (laughs) Like much of the Bible, right? Very easy to read, pretty simple. There's no mystery here, it's understandable. But it's difficult for us, isn't it? Humility is difficult for us. Pride, no problem there. Comes very easy, very naturally. Humility, not so much. See, here's the thing. Pride is the oldest sin in the book. Pride is what got Adam and Eve exiled from the garden. Pride is what got Lucifer thrown out of heaven. Pride infects us all. We're all children of Adam. But the added problem today is that pride is no longer really seen as a vice. It's it's not seen as some terrible character flaw, like the Bible says it calls it sin many times. It's not seen that way anymore. In our world, it's promoted. It's celebrated, right? Eugene Peterson observes, I quote, It is difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up on every side as a virtue urged as profitable and rewarded as an achievement. So here's here's why this is my longest point this morning. If we are going to know true contentment, we, we must begin with our greatest friend, humility. 
And we must go to war against, we must renounce our greatest enemy, pride, right? That's, that's, the, that's what verse 1 is all about. So let me ask, or say maybe some of you are asking here right now, okay, thank you, I agree. How do I get humility? Humility is one of those strange things. If you pursue humility, as soon as you think you've found it, you don't have it. Look at me. Admire my humility that I've discovered. You know, it just doesn't really ring, right? It doesn't work. So I think, I think we need to pursue humility the way David does. Humility should probably begin in our lives by recognizing and renouncing pride. If you want to take pride on, believe me, that's a fight you're in for. But as you fight and and by the grace of God and as you win, you will become a more humble person. Trust me. So the question, we, we need to ask ourselves not so much what is missing from my life as this. What doesn't belong? What doesn't belong? I don't know if you know this story about, uh, about uh, the great Renaissance artist Michelangelo and his famous statue of David that is in Florence. We all know that statue probably. Um, the story goes that at one, one day, uh, somebody came up to Michelangelo and asked him, How? How did you do it? How did you create this magnificent, magnificent statue of David from that huge slab of marble? And he said, apparently, it's easy. I just chipped away everything that didn't look like David. You get the point. We need to recognize in our lives, as we hold ourselves up against the most humble person who has ever lived, Jesus Christ, we need to recognize what doesn't belong. And we need to chip away at it. We need to renounce it. We need to go to war against it. We need to repent of it. We need to confess it. That's a fictitious story, but you get my point. So the next question should be, okay, then, how do I identify pride in my life? How do we identify pride? That's a good question, I think. It's, it's an uncomfortable question to start asking yourself. But, <laughs> but actually, it's pretty easy to identify pride. Just ask the person next to you that knows you really well. Just ask your kids. Just ask your spouse. And, and, and don't put up the walls. Welcome their answer. Say, no, I really want to hear. Really, I want you to tell me. And then your spouse will say, how much time do you have? <laughs> it's a funny thing about pride. We're often blind to it in ourselves, but boy, oh boy, others can usually see it, can't they? But sometimes it's, it's a little bit more incognito, and, and I think that we should uh, try to discern these things about ourselves. So... What I want to do with you in the next couple of minutes is, is, is help you discern the signs of pride in your life. I have 12 points. I'll give them to you very quickly. But trust me, I'm being very kind to you because I had a list of 50. So I'm just giving you, I'm giving you 12 that actually um, kind of land close to home for me. 
Here we go. Number one, we want to be well-known and important. We, we want to make a name for ourselves, and we really like that position of authority or that title, you know, with our people with the nameplate on their desk or on their door, right? We, we kind of notice that every morning when we come into the office. Yes, that's me. Number two, we're overly competitive. We have to win. And we are beside ourselves when we don't. Number three, we really want to impress others. We love to make others aware of our, of our many accomplishments. Things that we can do, places we've been, things that we own, people that we know. We subtly kind of weave that into the conversation, don't we? Number four, we seek to draw attention to ourselves. Let me ask you a question. If you look at a family photo, where does your eye go immediately? Boy, I was looking good that day. You know, we all look for ourselves. It doesn't matter that Aunt Mabel, who was in the photo and has gone to be with the Lord, we don't even notice she was there. It's me. We, we, we love the attention. We love to be the center of attention. We say things and we do things to be noticed. And here's what we cannot stand is when someone else steals the limelight. I should be there. Number five, we talk a lot about ourselves. Let me tell you about this, and I want to tell you about that. We want people to know everything we're doing and everything we're thinking. You need to know my opinion on this, and you need to know my opinion on that, and I can't shut up. In other words, we would much rather speak then be quiet and listen to what others have to tell us. Number six, sometimes we're not entirely honest about ourselves. We like to tell uh, what we call little lies or little embellishments, or, or we maybe don't entirely tell the whole truth because in doing that, we're really we're protecting and projecting a certain, uh, a certain view of ourselves, Right? We're projecting or presenting a certain reputation that we want to have in the eyes of others. And here's the flip side of that. We have a tough time admitting that we were wrong. We made a mistake. I have my own faults and flaws and shortcomings and problems. We don't, we don't talk readily about those things. Number seven. We love recognition and praise. When we do something, you better notice and you better slap me on the back or tell me how great it is. And something, if you miss it, if I've done something and you didn't notice it and say something about it, ooh, there's just this, this thing gets in me and I'm going to hold that against you until Jesus returns. Number eight. Thank you. <laughs> we are self-sufficient. 
What I mean by this is that we live with this, uh, this idea that life is not a gift. We don't, we don't live with the idea that every breath, that all of our health, that all of our friends and family, all that we have is a gift from God. We're sufficient in ourselves. We're very confident about our abilities and our strengths and our wisdom. And we, we don't really need the help of other people. Let me say this. Self-sufficient people are usually very prayerless people. Or if they do pray, it's very superficial prayers. And self-sufficient people almost never read the Word of God. They certainly don't read it as if they need it. Number nine, we often compare ourselves to others. We regularly feel superior or inferior to others. Inferiority is is just unapplauded pride. We love to compare ourselves to everyone else around us. Number 10, we lack thankfulness and gratitude. Instead of being deeply thankful for all that we have, we tend to grumble. We tend to complain. We tend to notice what is wrong. And we're far more aware of the people that have let us down and hurt us or disappointed us than all the amazing things the amazingly kind and good and caring and wonderful things that people have done for us. There's no record of that, but boy, oh boy, we have a record. We have a record of how you disappointed me, how you let me down. Thankless people are not amazed by the grace of God on their lives. Number 11, we're not teachable. We don't think that anybody else has much to teach us. And here's the thing. We're certainly not correctable. We don't like it when people bring an observation that actually somebody humbly brings with, with, with an observation, a correction, an admonishment, a word to help us. Who are you to talk to me like that? You know? I mean, there's just certain people you, you move toward and it's like, There's a 10-foot concrete wall. You could yell. They'd never hear it. And number 12, this will have somebody's address. We're perfectionists. Everything has to be right. And we freak out when it isn't. We get embarrassed or we get angry when, when, when things aren't just so. Well, those are my 12, some of them laying close to home for me. Uh, I've got a list of 50 if you want me to email it to you later on. But let me say this. This is just some. This is just a few of the symptoms of pride. So if what I've described, I'm not saying this to make you feel miserable this morning. You know, when the doctor, when the dentist comes and he says, you know, there's some definite tooth decay on that molar, he's not trying to upset you. He's trying to help you. And if we discern these, these telltale signs of pride, the answer isn't leave today feeling lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. The answer is to continue to listen to this message. 
Here's the thing. Here's what I think some people do when they, when they kind of notice things like this. They just say, well, that's just my personality. I'm just that way. Well, that's just Uncle George. No, Uncle George is arrogant. You know? It's not just your personality. It's a deeper problem. Again, I don't say this to make you feel miserable. I say this to bring us to verse 2, cultivating contentment. Look at what David says. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David gives us a beautiful illustration here, doesn't he, of contentment. Now, I know, you know, we've had some babies recently born, and they're the cutest little things in the world. They're adorable. You want to hold them and kind of snuggle them and, you know. But let me tell you, when babies are hungry, they're not so much fun. They're miserable little creatures. They squirm and whine. You know, if they could, they'd punch you. A hungry baby is a scary thing to behold. They, they just squirm around and, and they... I mean, they seem angry. They are the embodiment of discontentment when a baby is really hungry. Just ask any mother here. But, but... When a baby has a full belly of warm mother's milk, he or she is a completely different person. They're not, they're just, they're just satisfied. They're peaceful. They're at rest. They're a perfect picture of contentment. That's why David says what he says here. You know, they just kind of, lay there and they're making a little sound going like this and they're kind of half awake and half asleep and they're just laying in their mother's arms the cutest thing in the world 10 minutes before you know you thought you were watching the exorcist look at verse 2 again I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me calm quiet peaceful humble content that's what all of us want All of us want this in us, this inner tranquility, this quality of peacefulness in our lives, right? We are wired for this. We want this. And and it's so, so difficult to find. Notice what David says here. I have calmed and quieted my soul. This is something that he has done. God didn't just zap him with the Holy Spirit and give him some mystical experience of peace out of left field. David was involved here. Contentment is something that he has cultivated in his soul. So the question is for us, right? How did he do it? How can we do it? Get to the answer. Well, before I give you the answer, let me just say this. The answer is not, the answer is not by becoming a Buddhist and learning detachment through meditation. That's not the answer. The Bible The Bible's view of meditation and of humility and of contentment is nothing like that of Buddhism. So if the answer is in Buddhism, Fred, how do we cultivate contentment? Let me just say one more thing. There's no simple technique. There's no automatic formula. There's no pat answer. It takes time and it takes effort to cultivate true contentment. Charles Spurgeon, uh, uh, commenting on this psalm, Psalm 131, he said, let me quote him, 
It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I have in my hand here a book by a 17th century pastor by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. I don't know if you can read the title. It is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's, my copy is 228 pages. It's still in print. I would encourage you to pick up a copy. This doesn't, you know, we won't master this by this afternoon. Now, I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to remind you this morning that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Or, as I sometimes say, and my kids laugh at me because I say it too often, there is no McDonald's drive through approach to Christ-like maturity and character. So let's take a step forward. See, when David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul, he isn't talking about a spiritual technique. He's talked about what he has, he has learned over years of following the Lord. So now you're getting impatient. You're wondering, okay then, how did he do it? How can we do it? Look at verse 3. This is my third point. Verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. See, David doesn't seek contentment merely for himself. He's the king of Israel. He seeks contentment for his people, the people of Israel. And so he encourages them. He encourages others to join him in finding contentment where he has found it. Where? Hoping in the Lord. He has found contentment in the Lord. You see, we don't, like humility, we don't seek contentment. We seek the Lord and we get contentment. This is important. If you seek contentment, you'll miss it. If you seek the Lord, you will find it. It will come. It's the fruit of seeking the Lord. One of them is deep contentment, true contentment. Now, I don't know. I anticipated as I said these things to you this morning, I anticipated someone might say, as we read verse 3, that's it? Hope in the Lord? You know, surely there must be more to it than that, Pastor Fred. Hope in the Lord, that's it? That's where we find, that's how we find contentment? Then answer me this, smarty pants. I am hoping in the Lord, why am I still so discontent? Right? Some of us are thinking that right now. Well, there there are several reasons for that. But one that I want to just take the last few minutes that I have with you this morning to focus on is one reason that I don't think we often consider, but I think is very, very important. One reason why we say on the one hand, I'm hoping in the Lord, but inwardly we're restless, we're noisy, and we're discontent. We're just going to look at one reason. There are several. You can talk to me later in the lobby if you want to know more biblical ideas on this. See, some people don't find contentment through their hope in the Lord. Here's why. Because for them, and this describes more of us than we might like to admit, for them, the word Lord is just one of those words that the preacher uses too many times on Sunday morning. It's, it's kind of a, 
It's kind of a weightless word. It, it, it's a word that, well, that hits them the way water hits a duck. It hits the duck and it just goes off. It doesn't, it doesn't hit us with any force or any weight. We don't feel the glory and the wonder of that word when we think of the Lord. This is a big problem, and this is a big reason why we don't find contentment as we seek to hope in the Lord. The word Lord doesn't convey a truth that we move toward and want to put all of our hope in. Maybe that's you this morning. So let me take a couple of minutes to try and, and put a little weight into that word for us because I believe this. This is so important because A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I, I, he's right. What comes into our minds when we think about God? Is it just kind of a a God, Lord? You know, it's just kind of a a vague kind of word that just drifts away once we've heard it or, or said it ourselves. Or does it grip us? Does it land on us with freight and weight and wonder and power? That's what it needs to do for us. See, the word God or Lord, it isn't what Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx said. They said that all religious ideas are just illusions that human beings have invented to help them make their helplessness a little more tolerable. That's not what we're doing here. We're not discussing discussing myths and illusions. We're discussing reality. The Bible teaches that the Lord is there. He exists. He exists independently and eternally. He is ultimate reality. We are penultimate reality. He is the one true living personal triune God. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything in heaven and on earth right now and forevermore. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 11.36, all things are from him and through him and to him. Or as he says in Acts 17.25, he is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, and the Bible also teaches that this Lord has revealed himself to us. He's spoken to us. He is speaking to us. He speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us in history. He speaks to us through the wonder of creation. And he has spoken supremely to us in the person of his own beloved son. The Lord is the one who made you in his own image and against whom we have rebelled and gone astray. The Lord is the God of the patriarchs and the the prophets and the apostles. The Lord is the Lord of all other lords. 
He is the king of all other kings that exist now or ever will exist. He is the president of all the presidents. And best of all, he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God and father sent his son into the world to redeem us from our rebellion and sin against him. He could have poured out his judgment and wrath, but he didn't. He sent his son into the world to bear his judgment and his wrath in our place. He died the death that we deserve to die for our rebellion against him. Now, David did not see all the details of what I just said. He lived a thousand years before the coming of Christ. But he knew this. He knew the promise of this hope. And let me finish just with this. The psalm right before the one we're looking at this morning, Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For, because, with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full, complete redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. That is why we should put our hope in the Lord. And Peter, years after David wrote this, focused it more particularly, more succinctly for us when he said, 1 Peter 1.13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. Friends, we are not the source of our hope. That's a foolish, foolish thing. We are not the source of our hope. We are not the source of our own contentment. Only Jesus Christ is. Hope in him. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. We, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We're, we're far too self-sufficient. Help us. Humble ourselves before your glory and your majesty, before your authority and your power, before your dominion. Help us humble ourselves before you and worship you as you alone deserve. And from that humble place, pour out your spirit upon us that we may, might know this inner quality of, of peace and quiet and contentment. As we stop striving against you and we rest in the hope that you have secured for us in the person of your own dear son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Oh, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.